Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. The title for today, we're in Mark chapter 10, 17 to 22, and it's The Poor Young Man. Now, I know a lot of you say, wait, I thought it was The Rich Young Man. It's usually called The Rich Young Man, but in reality, he was poor. He was spiritually poor, and now he's eternally poor. You've heard the saying, you can't take it with you. It's true. You have never seen our hearse pulling a U-Haul. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and, he, and he couldn't spend it where he is anyway. You can store up treasures in heaven, but you cannot store them up in hell. You can't spend them in hell. And this is a vital teaching for us because we live surrounded by wealth here in the New Hope Solberry area. There are many poor, rich people all around us. I talk to them all the time. They have everything, but they have nothing. Their lives are empty. They're in pain. talk to them all the time. Many of you were once those people. I remember coming, talking to you in your homes, and, and some of you coming talking to me in my homes, and I remember the emptiness. A lot of you, you've, a lot of you have shared your testimonies during our testimony time. You've, you've heard many, many testimonies of people right here that once lived that empty life of, of having it all but having nothing and, and realizing that only Jesus Christ can fulfill us. Let's see what Jesus has to say about true riches here. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for our time of worship and the time to refocus and to allow your spirit to begin to speak to us and move in our hearts. And we pray now that as our hearts are ready, that, that your word would speak to us. Every one of us is here for a reason. You want to speak to us. You want to move in our hearts and, and transform our minds and, and change our lives. We pray for your mercy and grace to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read the passage. We're not going to get through the whole passage today. We're going to, I'm going to read 17 through 27, but we'll only get through verse 22. So you're going to have to come back next week for part two. But it says here, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. At this the, man, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So let's start with verse 17 here where it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man runs up. What does that show us? He's eager. He's motivated spiritually. He's hungry, right? 
He, the altar call has been given and he's running up there. Luke 18 tells us that he was a ruler. Matthew 19 tells us that he was a young man. So here he has this, this young, rich ruler here. He's who's who. He's already accomplished so much in life. He's got a great resume, very accomplished in life already. But that obviously had left him empty because he knew there was more to life and more to eternal life, right? Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knew there had to be more. And, and when he says, what, how do I inherit eternal life? What is he really asking? How do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven someday? That's the million-dollar question. Some of you might remember the $164,000 question. Uh, but that's the million-dollar question now. When I die, will I go to heaven? That's what he's really asking Jesus. Will I go to heaven or will I go to hell? Where am I going to end up someday? And this is a question that everybody has. Everyone. Even though they try to bury it, I have many people come to me and they struggle with addictions and, and, the, and, and they, as they come to Christ, they say, you know why I was addicted to this or why I drank, why I used drugs, why I did all, think of, there's a million different addictions. All the, the things I did, I did it because I was afraid to die. And I did it to kill that fear and to, to numb the fear that I had of dying. That's really why I was doing this. Because deep down, even if people try to, to bury it under, self-medicate, bury it under some, something else, that's really the deep question that we have. Will we spend eternity with God someday or not? And he says to Jesus, what must I do? D-O. What must I do? When he asked that question, he missed a very, very important point that Jesus just finished, remember last time, Jesus just finished teaching us that we can't do anything. Look back at verse 15. Back up a couple verses here. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He had just finished teaching how we enter the kingdom of heaven, how we enter the kingdom of God. We can't do anything. We can only receive it like a little child. Remember, he talked about the childlike faith from last week. Want to get that and listen to that? But we talked about John 1, 12, where he says, Yet to all received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The way we receive is by believing. We, we talked about that. Then in John 3, 3, we talked about how we become a child of God. He says to Nicodemus, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And how are we born again? How do we become a child of God? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We, we receive the gift of life. We receive eternal life by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And we talked about that word faith doesn't mean intellectual knowledge or assent. It means a heart. It means to, to totally trust and, and to cling to. We talked about the little child clinging to a parent when they're scared and they just grab on. And that's the picture in the Greek is to totally cling to, totally trust in. And the time has to come in our life where we, we say, God, I believe my sin has separated me from a relationship with you here on earth and for all eternity. But I believe you gave your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my sin as a substitute to ransom me. And, and I put my faith in your son Jesus. I put my total trust in what he has done. It's nothing I can do. It's what he has done. I give my life to him. And so many miss this today. So many are like the young man who's saying, what, what do I need to do? 
What do I need to do? And they try to be very religious to get right with God. Or, or they're trying to do enough good to outweigh the bad. Most people, you talk to them and you say, well, how are you going to plan on getting to heaven? What's your plan? They all have a plan of what they're going to do. But we can't earn eternal life. We can't earn it. Or Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. If we could have done it on our own, he wouldn't have had to die on the cross. We can only put our faith in what he has done. There's nothing we can do. We can only put our faith in what he has done. D-O-N-E for us. That's the critical part that we realize he died for us. He took our place. He took our punishment. He took the holy God's righteous requirements on himself, the law's penalty on himself in our place. And all we can do is receive by believing what he has done, by giving our life to Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And Jesus uses this question that he asks to teach some very, very powerful lessons. Verse 18, he says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not saying, A, he's not good, and he's not saying he's not God. Neither one is he saying. We already know he claimed to be God. We've been looking at this all the way through the book of Mark. He claimed to be God's son, which, mean, which would make him perfect. Remember, back, back up a couple chapters here, just a quick refresher. In Mark chapter 8, verse 29, where he says to Peter, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. In the parallel passage in Matthew 16, 16, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We already saw that, that we, we know that. That's, all over the, the Bible, Jesus claims his divinity. All over the New Testament, claims it over and over. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9 and 10, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The divinity, he's not saying he's not good or he's not God. He's not saying that. But what he is saying to this man, he's saying, Why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Do you really know who you're talking to? Only God is good. So if you call me that, you better understand that who you're really talking to because it will make all the difference in the world because I'm going to make a demand on your life. And this demand is based on my authority to do this. So you have to understand who I really am. He's going to make a very serious demand in his life and he has the authority to do that. Verse 19, back in Mark chapter 10, verse 19, where he says to him, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Out of those commands, there's six commandments he gives here. Defraud is the covet commandment. Don't covet what your neighbor has. And the idea is if you covet it, you're going to try to take it. That's probably what, that's very likely what Jesus is saying. If that's the case, then Jesus has just named six of the ten commandments. And these six have to do with our relationship with people, how we treat other people. This is the ones he names. The first four, the, the other four, the first four, have to do with our relationship with God, right? No other gods before me, don't make an idol, don't misuse my name, honor the Sabbath. Those are all the, the, our relationship with, with God the Father. But these all have to do, the six he names, have to do with our relationship with other people. Now notice that he doesn't say the law can save you. He, say, he doesn't say, this is how you can be saved, keep these, keep these laws. He doesn't say that. What does he say? You know the commandments. He just kind of puts it out there. You, you know the commandments. 
We're going to see why in a few minutes, why you just said it that way. You see, Jesus is not teaching that the law saves us. The goal of the law is never salvation. You know why? Because we can't keep the law. If we could have kept the law, Jesus wouldn't have had to die, right? We can't keep the law. We cannot be good enough. Nobody can. Romans 3.20. In Romans 3.20 it says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. No one will be declared righteous in the sight of God, in, in his sight, by observing the law. We can't do it. It's impossible to keep the law. The law was not given so that we could earn salvation. The law was given to show us our sinfulness. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. It was to, to show us our sinfulness, to show us our helplessness, to show us our hopelessness, that we don't deserve a relationship with God, we're separated from him, and that would bring us to Jesus Christ and to the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Romans 3.21, the next verse says this, But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. It brings us, the law brings us to the cross, makes us conscious of our sin and drives us to Jesus Christ and his mercy and his grace and his justification and it's through faith. But this guy, this guy thinks he's sinless. This rich, young ruler, who's who guy, thinks he's sinless. Look what he says here in verse 20. Back to Mark chapter 10, verse 20. He says, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Been there, done that. Each of the Ten Commandments, click, check them off. I've done all. Kept since I was a boy. Age 13 was when a Jewish boy was responsible to keep the law. That's very likely the age of accountability, which we talked about last week. But he's, he's, like, he's like a lot of people in the USA today. He said, I've, I've kept them all. Ever since I can remember, he's, he's kept them all. What is he? He's delusional. Right? He's delusional. He's delusional just like a lot of people in the United States today. They think they're good. We think, and you, most people, we think we're good. We, we think we rarely, if ever, sin. I know with, uh, with when we did Evangelism Explosion years ago, that was very popular. We used to, we were trained how to teach people the gospel, share the gospel with people. And, and the key was, the, the starting point was helping them understand that they actually sin. Because most people in America don't think they really they, uh, sin. They don't realize the seriousness, seriousness of sin to a holy God. You see, for some reason, we think with God, it's no big deal that we sin. If we have rules, we expect everybody to follow them, right? If you're a parent, we get really upset when our, parents don't listen, when our kids don't listen to us. Or if we're a teacher, we get upset if they don't do their assignments or don't take a test. There's consequences. If we're a, a, you know, a coach, you know, you get kicked off the team. If you don't come to the practices, right? Uh, you know, go on and on. When it comes to our personal property, somebody takes something from us. We get upset if we're, if we're driving. We get caught you know, breaking the law of driving, there's consequences. But for some reason, when it comes to God, we just think no big deal. Because, you know, God's like this warm, fuzzy guy out there, this grandpa-Santa Claus combination. And it doesn't matter what we do, he doesn't care. Because he's the only guy that doesn't, matter, doesn't care what we do. Isn't it true? 
We expect people to listen to us, follow our rules, but when it comes to God's rules, we can just make it up as we go. We, but so the, the key with evangelism and explosions, we had to show people that they actually sinned and it was serious to God. And, and I remember what, the way we shared that is we would say, and I did this many, shared this with many people of the gospel. I say, do you think you sin every day? Oh, no, 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 definitely not. You know, most, I'm serious. serious. They, like, most people I talk to, rarely would they say they sin every day. I go, well, really, you don't ever, no, no, I don't sin every day, no way. I go, well, do you think once a week maybe you make a mistake, you know? Okay, once a week. You know, I could get most people to agree, maybe once a week, you know, I do something wrong. I said, okay. Now, I'm like laughing inside because I'm like, I know I just sinned in the last five minutes. I can't believe you haven't done it at least that much, you know? So, so uh, you know, hundreds of times a day, right? So, so then I say, okay, now, think of sin. So once a week, how many sins would that make in a year? 52. Okay, 52. Let's say it's not a sin. Let's say it's a traffic ticket. What if you got a traffic ticket once a week for a whole year? How many would that be? 52. What if you went before a traffic judge with those 52 tickets? What would happen? I'd lose my license. I wouldn't drive ever again, right? Never again, right? So let's see it this way. What if you sin once a week, 52 times 70 years, and you start to do the math, and, and you maybe have a bad week or a bad day, and you do more, you know, lots, lots. Then they start to realize, whoa, just like that traffic judge is going to take your license away, there's going to be consequences. God's the same way. There are, there's consequences. And, and for us to think that we don't sin is delusional and we don't realize the seriousness of that sin. So this rich young ruler thinks he's kept the law. Not. But he obviously knows there must be more because he wouldn't have come to Jesus with this question. Because no one, even if you're trying to do the right thing, no one can have assurance of salvation by trying to be good. Why? Chuck Harrison? Because you never know if you're good enough. What is good enough? You never have assurance when you're trying to earn it. You never know. And religion is not enough to fill the spiritual void. All those rituals and religious rituals, it's not enough. It will never fill that spiritual void. Only a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, through faith can do that. It's the only thing. And so Jesus says, okay, this guy's not getting it. He's just not getting it. So he cuts right to the heart of the matter in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. One thing you lack. It says he looked at him and loved him. It's, it's a, an idea of his heart went out. To, Jesus' heart went out to this this young ruler. And he says, one thing you lack. Ironic that he says you lack something. This is the guy who doesn't lack anything materially, right? He had everything, but he lacked something spiritually which made him incredibly poor, the poor young man. He says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus didn't say this to everyone, did he? Many, many people came to Jesus. And he always said something different. He might tell one person to give up something else. Someone else, they had to do something. Everyone, he, Jesus knows our heart. and He knows what each one of us needs to give up. What each one of us needs to surrender. What each one of us needs to focus on. He didn't say it to everyone. He just said it to this guy because he knew what was in his heart. And this new vow of poverty isn't what would save him. 
He's not saying if you do this, this is what's going to save you. All you need to do is sell your stuff. You're going to go to heaven someday. It's not a formula for getting into heaven. What would save him? Come follow me. That was the salvation. Following Jesus, putting his faith in Jesus, his trust in Jesus. Remember we talked about following Jesus back in Mark chapter 8, 34 through 38. Let me just refresh your memory there. Verse 34 where Jesus says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to take up our cross. And that's what would save him. But Jesus knew that his money was keeping him from putting his faith in Jesus and following him and getting his salvation. He knew. That's why he said, you have to give it up, then follow me, because he knew that's what was stopping him from putting his faith in Jesus, Put, stopping him from following Jesus and finding that eternal life that he was seeking because the money had become an, thank you, an idol. It was an idol for him. It had become an idol for this man. An idol is something that we put before God. Something we put before God. It could be a person, a place, or a thing. And it keeps us from giving our life to Jesus Christ, like this man. Or after we become a Christian, it keeps us from staying close to Jesus and really following him and, and reaching our full spiritual potential. That's what, that's what idols do. And money was this man's idol. It was his idol. Look what, it, look what he does because of this idol. Verse 22, he says... At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad. This is the only man, the only person in the Bible that ever came to Jesus and then when he left his presence was worse off than when he left. Not talking about Pharisees who are attacking, but someone who came to Jesus with a question, a spiritual need, a desire, a problem, came to him, everyone else left with joy, with salvation, with healing, with peace. Everyone else left better off except this man. He was worse off when he left. Worse off. And you see, Jesus had hit a nerve. He loved money more than God. His trust was in his riches. That's what he's trusting in. And you can't, if we can't trust God with our daily needs, can we trust him for eternity? Think about that. We can't trust them with our daily needs. We can't trust them for eternity. And that's what this is, was the issue here. We can't serve two masters. And it was his master. He was a slave to money. He didn't have money. Money had him. He didn't have riches. Riches had him. And a lot of us remember when we were like that, don't we? Not just to money, but a lot of things that we were slave to that had us. I remember when I was uh, in seminary a long time ago, and I remember 
I was working as a groundskeeper. A lot of people would advertise at seminary. I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, in Illinois, uh, near Chicago. And the, uh, I remember people would advertise, and somebody advertised for a groundskeeper. I needed some money. It was a flexible job. So I was doing this groundskeeper's job for this very wealthy couple. They owned a, I'm not going to say what they own because I want to peg them, but they owned a well-known company. And, and I remember working for them, and, and they were very, very old and very, very rich. And they had, both had their Jaguars, they had these matching white Jaguars. And the crazy thing was, every time a new Jaguar come up, they go out and buy the newest model. And inevitably, the guy was a very bad driver, he's very old, he would crash it. He would crash it, and you would think, oh, that's a horrible thing, no big deal. They just have the guy drive it back and bring him a new one. He just would just like replace the Jaguars, it was crazy. And, and I remember trying to talk to them about God, because I worked for him for about a year, two years, and I remember trying to talk to them about God, and it was like talking to stones. There was nothing, no spiritual anything. It was, it was really sad. And I'll never forget, the stock market crashed when I was there. It was 1986, 7? When was that big crash? 87, thank you. Black Tuesday? Black Thursday. One of, one of those black days. And uh, it was 1987, and it crashed. And I was working at their house when it was crashing. Everybody's freaking out. I was just heartbroken, you know, because... All my stocks were just, I'm joking, I had nothing, you know. And so I'm like, why are these people so upset, you know. And, uh, and so, but, but I remember walking, I was washing his windows and working outside, looking through. And here this guy is, he's got one foot in the grave. I'm not kidding, he was barely moving. And here he is sitting in front of the TV set. And he had that, where they did the stocks on the channel. I've never even watched it, I couldn't even tell you what it's called. But the business channel on it, and they just kept showing the stocks coming across the screen and dropping, 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 dropping. And, and this man was just sitting there, and every time I walked by, he's just sitting in his little, I think it was even a wheelchair he was in, just sitting, watching the screen, watching the screen, watching the screen. And, I, and, and all I could think about was, was like, this man is a slave. This is worthless. He's this close to eternity. We all are, but he, was, he, was, he really was right there. And, and, he's, and all he could worry about is his worthless stock. And if it wasn't worthless then, it was going to be worthless. In a, in a, in a, he's a, a breath away from it being worthless, a heartbeat away from it being totally worthless. So many of us are slaves. It's not just the money. Think about what we are slaves to, what, what we need to be freed from. We're going to do part two next week, but I want to just stop here because uh, there's a whole lot more with this passage. But I want to ask this, is there anything keeping us from Jesus? Is there anything keeping us from putting our faith in Jesus? Or really, maybe we've put our faith in, but really following him fully, really following, surrendering something that would let us reach our true spiritual potential, stay very close to Jesus Christ. It could be money, very common, very, very common. Most people tell say, oh, money's not a problem. I say, so I always give them this test, new believers and even older believers. I say, okay, I'm going to give you the tithe test. Do you tithe? I have no idea who tithes. I never look at money, only our treasurer looks, and he's very discreet. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me. I've twisted his arm a few times. He won't tell me what people give. So, I'm kidding. But, but I, so I can ask this because I don't know. I say, do you tithe? Now, see, the Old Testament taught tithing, and there were several different tithes, but let's just say the baseline tithe was the 10% tithe, and that's just a baseline. Now, the New Testament's a whole different thing. New Testament teaches sacrificial giving, which is way beyond 10%, by the way, way beyond. 
Sacrificial giving is what's taught in the New Testament. Not tithing. But tithing is a baseline. Okay, that's a good baseline. I say, do you tithe 10%? Well, no. I said, then it's an idol. Money's an idol. You're depending. You won't give God that 10% that he's asked you to give. He gives you 100%. And you can't give him that 10% back. It's an idol. That makes it an idol in our life if we won't tithe. But that, now, once we give the 10%, then God, the Holy Spirit can really start to work in our heart. We figure out sacrificial giving to missions and, and to the needy. And it's not just the 10% of the church, but it's, it's the missionaries and the needy and, and all kinds of special needs in the body. And there's all kinds of other ways the sacrificial giving should be kicking in. But that, that tells us, the tithe test tells us, is money an idol in our life? And I've heard people do all kinds of gymnastics to get around it. Well, I give God my time, and I send my kids to Christian school, and that's my tithe. And, and they do all kinds of crazy gymnastic justifications. But it's really a test, the tithe test. Here's another one. It's not just money, but it could be something else. It could be anything else in our life could become an idol in our life. It could be something that keeps us from from a relationship, a close relationship with God. I think of, I'll use, a, there's a lot of things I could use. I think of physical pleasure, addictive sins, addictive sins. They're, these addictive sins are physical, usually mental, physically driven, emotionally driven, but they bring us pleasure, but, but in the end, they're very empty. If you've ever struggled with addiction, you know what I'm talking about. It meets a real short-term need, but in the end, you're very empty, and you're worse off than you were before, and you're, you're, it's, it's empty, and it's a lie. You realize what a lie it is, and you've battled, we battle our way out of addictions, and, and once we get out of it, we can see what a lie it was. It, didn't, it wasn't fulfilling. It was a lie, but we become a slave to some of these drugs. Let's call it, use drugs. It's an easy one. That's why God says to run from them, to run from temptation. Because it traps us. It could be someone. It could be someone. It could be a friend or a girl or a boyfriend or popularity or peer pressure in our life that is, is the idol that keeps us from Jesus, from putting our faith in him or, or staying close to him. Is there anything or anyone in our life that is keeping us from totally following God's call on our life? Convicting, isn't it? It's keeping us, or it's keeping us from true intimacy with Jesus. It's stealing, it's stealing our intimacy. It's stealing our joy. It's blocking our spiritual potential. It's, it's hurting the fruit. It's hindering the fruit that God wants to create in our life. Is there anything in our life? The idol test. Here's the idol test. I gave you the tithe test. Here's the idol test. How do we respond when God asks us to surrender? that person, place, or thing? How do we respond? How do we respond when he takes it away? Sometimes he knows it's going to be tough. He just takes it away. And it's really meant to be a good thing in our life, but how do we respond? Because it's painful. It hurts. It's, it's surgery. How do we respond? The way we respond shows us if, if it's an idol or not. I knew a, a guy years ago. He was a great basketball player. Had a scholarship, was going to go to a real high-level school to play, play basketball, and, he, and he, he was injured playing basketball. Couldn't play anymore. He became bitter 
Instead of turning to God and getting a close relationship with God through the trial, he became bitter. And he turned to drugs. And the last I knew, he was still an addict. He turned to drugs, and, and he became a serious drug addict. And that, that's, that's, he couldn't break it. You know why? Because basketball was his idol. And when God took it away, he replaced it with another idol. Right? That's what he did. How many times, how about us, are we, are we fighting God, getting angry, upset? So you see, God often tests us to show us, what, to show us what's in our hearts. He knows what's in our hearts, but he tests us through something like this to show us what's in our hearts. That's what he does. Dear Abby, years and years ago, I don't even know how long, long time ago, dear Abby, I saved this one because it just reminded me of this story. It says, greedy son gets lesson from Bible's contents. And she tells the story, says, a young man from a wealthy family was about to graduate from high school. It was the custom in this affluent neighborhood for the parents to give the graduate an automobile. Bill, didn't use the real name, Bill and his father had spent months looking at cars, and the week before graduation, they found the perfect car. Bill was certain that the car would be his on graduation night. Imagine his disappointment when on the eve of his graduation, Bill's father handed him a gift-wrapped Bible. Bill was so angry, he threw the Bible down and stormed out of the house. He and his father never saw each other again. It was the news of his father's death that brought Bill home again. As he sat one night going through his father's possessions that he was to inherit, he came across the Bible his father had given him. He brushed away the dust and opened it to find a cashier's check. dated the day of his graduation in the exact amount of the car that they had chosen together. How often do we do that? We're expecting something and we don't get it. And God has a reason for that. He's handed us something spiritual instead. Even with the other blessings backloaded somehow in a different way than we expected them, but backloaded, but we miss out because we, we, we get angry or disappointed with God. And we're like, what are you doing? When he has had our best plan all along. It was always there. The blessing was always there. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian yet. Because something's keeping you from Jesus Christ, putting your faith in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question. Is it worth your eternal life? Whatever it is, is it worth your eternal life? Imagine this poor young man when he's an old man. He's an old man and he's looking back on this empty life that he's lived because it was empty, I guarantee you. He's like the old guy sitting in front of the computer watching the stocks crash. And he had to be thinking, I traded Jesus for this? Now picture him in eternity, in hell, where he is today. And he says, I gave up eternal life with God in heaven for what? For what? Do you have eternal life? That's the, not the $164,000 question, not the million-dollar question, not even the billion or trillion-dollar question. That's the priceless question. Do you have eternal life in Jesus Christ? It's the most important question you will ever ask. Ask, where will I spend eternity? 
And eternity, eternal life isn't just in heaven someday. It starts now. It starts the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It affects life now. When we put our life, faith in Jesus, it's just so we can live in heaven someday, which is awesome. It'd be worth it just that. But he gives us life now. We don't have to live an empty, purpose, purposeless life. We can live a, the life he's created us to live now. It affects how we live every day. It affects the quality and purpose of our life every day from the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But there's nothing you can do to get that life. There's nothing you can do. It's already been D-O-N-E done. It's been done. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ can save us and give us assurance and fill that void. And there's only one way to that life now and forever, and that's through Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it to you once again just to close before we go to prayer. Romans 3, a couple verses from Romans 3 that I read. First of all, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We have all sinned. We are separated from God. We have, can never reach God's glory. We are separated from the Holy God because of sin. But back up one verse. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. That is the way by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to get right with God and have his righteousness. Let's pray. Every one of us, as we go to this time of prayer, every one of us has to ask this question because it will be asked of us someday. Someday we will stand before the Holy God and he will say, why should I let you into heaven? And there's only one answer that opens that door. It's not what we do, religious things or, or trying to be good or selling all of our possessions and goods. Nothing we do will work. It's only what Jesus Christ has done. Because I've put my faith in your son Jesus. I believe he died for my sin, the wrong I've done. I, I repented of that sin. I put my faith in him. And surrendered my life to him. You can pray that prayer right now. You can settle this question right now. I would encourage you to do that. I wouldn't wait one more second to settle it. Because it's life here and it's life forever that's affected. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now and, and calling you, don't wait right where you're sitting. There's nothing you have to do. It's receiving something that's been done. Just say, God, I believe, I do believe that Jesus died for me so that I could be forgiven. I ask you to forgive me. I'm turning my back on sin. I'm walking away from that. I'm repenting of that. I, I ask you to forgive me. I'm putting my faith in your son Jesus who died for me. I'm going to follow him. I give you my life, God. 
I want to live the life you created me to live. The real life, the fulfilling life, the life of peace, the life of joy. If you've prayed that prayer, then you no longer have to fear death. You will never have to fear death again because there is no such thing as death. It's life to life for you now. It's life on here on earth and it's stepping into life eternally with God and his son Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you and your life will never be the same. I want to encourage you to let somebody know. If you want to fill out the card, stick it in the box. Tell me on the way out. If you have, maybe came with a family member or a friend, tell them. Let somebody know. Text me, call me, email. Let somebody know about this very important step you've taken because we're going to be excited and we're going to help you in your new relationship with God. For those of us who have already put our faith in Christ, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? We covered a lot today. What's keeping us from intimacy with Jesus? What do we need to surrender so that our life can make a difference for Jesus Christ, so that we could reach our full potential for Jesus? Maybe there's an idol that God's convicting us. I, I hated doing this sermon because I, I was hit with about 20 of them. There's an idol that God is convicting us of and saying, let it go. Doesn't mean it, something can't have a place in our life, but it cannot come before God's call on our life. That's the test. What, is, what do we need to put God before? Even giving something up? And maybe God has called us to give something up and we have been fighting him and we've become bitter or angry or you fill in the blank. But we need to say, God, forgive me. I'm going to trust you with what you're doing here. I believe you have my good in view. We pray for your mercy and grace in Jesus' name. Amen.